You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everyone. Now for quite a while now, I was trying to think about how long it's been. It's been a while, though. My wife, Adrian has been uh, having some like physical pain type problems. And over the past year or so, it's gotten much more intense, in particular, just a couple weeks ago. But they, they've given her all kinds of explanations for what it could be. I mean, uh, they, they've given her the, oh, you're young, it'll take care of itself kind of thing. Uh, they said maybe it's a hernia, maybe it's fibromyalgia, maybe it's endometriosis. They've given her all these different diagnoses, but haven't really uh, said exactly what's going on with this pain. Now, like I said, it's been uh, kind of intensifying over the past year or so, the pain. And then a couple weeks ago, it was pretty bad for about a week. So I stayed home from work uh, three days that week to help out. We don't have any family around, so with the kids, there was no one else to help out because uh, she was in a ton of pain. Couldn't I mean? There was one day she slept for like 18 hours, which you know, well done on that. Uh, and so <laughs> I uh, I stayed home to help out with that. And you know, me being as uh, selfish as I am, I started getting really stressed out about that. By about day number two, I started getting really stressed about staying home from work and falling behind with things. Now, because it was a Thursday, and I'm a teacher, and the lesson plans for the next week are due, like on Friday, and I hadn't started them yet. And so that's five days worth of lessons, plus I teach six classes every day. So six times five equals 30. I had 30 lessons to prepare, and I was starting to stress out because all my stuff was at school. I couldn't work on it from home. I had probably about 50 essays to start grading because I'd been home already. I was taking a class to get my license renewed. Plus, I had the sermon to worry about. So I started getting all stressed about things. Now, it wasn't even really uh, the stress that was bothering me. It was that I wasn't able to work, or it wasn't the workload, I should say, that was bothering me. It was that I wasn't able to work on any of it because I couldn't do any of that from home, really. And I had to do things like get the groceries and clean the house and watch the kids. And then, because of that, because of that stress and, and not being able to work on anything, then I started getting sort of angry and bitter and depressed. And kind of this really selfish thought entered my mind about this was that the thing that was bumming me out was I was staying home helping Adrian because she was falling behind on her stuff and, and she could get helped out. But me, no poor old me, no one can help me with my stuff. No one can grade my papers for me. No one can do my lesson plans for me. No one can write my sermons for me. So I started getting really bitter and sort of angry about that. And now some guys will like punch holes in walls or, or scream, that kind of thing. What I do is get whiny. So I started whining about feeling that way. And I told Adrian, I was telling her this, like, no one can help me except for me. I just got to do the work. No one can give me any help. And I said, all you got to do, you be nice to me. If you were nice to me, then I would feel encouraged and I'd be able to do these things. And I was not like I was asking this nicely myself and I was being whiny about it. And here's, here's the point, kind of a long way to get there, but I want to get that context where There's probably a million examples I could have used to demonstrate this. This is just one thing that happened recently. It's this selfish love that we have. And I would love to say, I love my wife unconditionally, selflessly, no matter what. I'm just happy to serve and please. I can't say that, though, because stuff like that happens a lot. And I think it happens in all of our relationships. No matter what we say, there's this sort of selfish aspect of it that we're... There's something about the relationship that benefits us or we want from it. You know, I wanted niceness from her. I wasn't just happy to serve and help out. No, you got to be nice to me also. 
And so there's very rarely this selfless kind of love that we want something from the other person uh, to build us up or we're getting something from them or else we get really discouraged about showing our love. Now I'm picking on myself because I deserve it, but also because, uh, well, we all do this. Yeah, I think if we're honest about it, there's, I don't know if there's any relationship we could say that we're completely selfless about. It's just an honor to serve and sacrifice and love. And there's never anything I want out of the relationship. I, I don't think there's anything like that. The closest I can get is with my kids. But again, I can't even say, and really, biblically, the priorities would be God, spouse, kids. And that's, you know, not ideal that I can't say that about my wife, that I always love her selflessly. And what I don't often consider is her point of view when I'm doing stuff like this, like being whiny, making demands out of her love. And I imagine what she would be thinking. Like, okay, now I got to be nice to Steve or he won't help me when I'm hurting, when I'm in pain. I mean, she's in physical pain, not able to do things, and I'm being whiny about it. You need to be nice to me and help me out. Now, here's where the deeper problem goes. That's a problem just within itself, that we always want something from someone else rather than just selflessly giving. But the, the bigger problem is then we project this onto God. We got this selfish kind of love that we project onto God. And because our love is selfish, we assume God's love must be selfish. Because our love is conditional, we assume God's love is conditional. Because my love is based on works people do for me, we assume God's love is based on works we do for Him. And this will show up in two, two basic ways. The, the first one most obvious is that we think we need to be good or God won't love us. We think there's a standard of performance that we have to do or God's not going to love us if we don't meet that standard. That we probably set, I mean, we're reading the Bible, getting sort of God's view, but we kind of set the standard and say, if I'm good enough to this standard, God's probably going to be pretty happy with me. If I'm not meeting this standard, God is going to be angry with me. But that's projecting that selfish love we have onto God. Because that's how I operate with my relationships. That's how I assume God would operate. Now, the other way this shows up is kind of the reverse. And this is mostly what we're going to deal with tonight. If bad things are happening to us, that means God is angry with us. If bad things are happening, we're not performing in the way we should, because that's what we do. If we're sort of punishing someone, you know, the silent treatment, holding the relationship ransom for whatever demand we want, and if we do that punishment unto someone, we assume God must do that to us. Or we act like He would do that to us. Now this puts a big strain on our relationship with God. It's very difficult to trust God when this is how we view Him. And it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but it affects every single one of us. We, none of us perfectly love, so none of us perfectly receive God's love, and none of us perfectly embrace His love. And ultimately what this leads to is a works mentality. In some way or another, this will show up in our relationship with God. This idea of where we think we need to earn His love. And this again comes up in sort of two ways. One way is we think we can earn God's approval by doing enough good things so we need to work. Other people need to work to earn my approval, so I must need to do that to earn God's approval. i got to do good things. i got to be righteous, be religious, do the right things for God to like me. But it also means, this is the trickier one, we can get this idea where we think we've earned God's approval, so the blessings we get are a result of our performance, which is just as much works as the other one. Thinking, yeah, I've earned God's approval, God must be happy with me, the good thing I'm getting in my life is a result of that. That's still that works mentality, that selfish love, which isn't the God of the Bible. Unconditional, sacrificial love, that's what... God shows in his book, the Bible. And it's this kind of thing that we're going to look at tonight in Job. This works mentality versus a grace mentality and how it creeps up in all of us. And the root of this is our selfish love projected onto God. And it makes it very difficult for us to understand a God full of grace. So I'll be in Job starting at chapter 8 tonight. And uh, just kind of to, to cover the backstory here in case you don't know the story, Job 
was a righteous man. It says that he did good. He was not doing anything bad necessarily. I mean, yeah, bad because we all do, but not the Bible doesn't even point that out. It just says Job is a righteous man who is just and blameless in the sight of God. He had a lot of possessions, a great house, lots of animals, lots of servants, and a lot of kids. So he appeared to be very blessed by most standards we measure that by. Now it says in Job 1, gives us the backstory where God was very proud of Job. And Satan showed up to God to kind of check in. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, who is upright and blameless? And Satan then accuses Job and said, he's only that way because you give him everything he wants. Take away his possessions, take away his blessings, he will curse you to your face. God tells Satan to do that. And so Job's children die, his house is destroyed, and all of his possessions are gone. Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He never charged God with any wrongdoing. So Job did not do what Satan accused him that he would do. So Satan goes back to God, and God says again, have you considered my servant Job? He didn't curse me to my face. He, he accepted what happened. And Job says, well, yeah, he still has his health. If you take away that, he's going to curse you to your face. So God says to Satan, okay, take away his health. And Satan does. He gets boils. He gets uh, skin disease. And Job says, can we only accept good from the Lord and not evil? And in all this, he didn't charge God with wrong. And that's the backstory here, setting up these tragic events that happen to Job. So Job loses everything he has. And then his friends come to comfort him. Or at least that's their intention. But what we see now, we're in the section of the book where Job's friends are trying to explain to him what's going on. Job cries out to them. He, he says, that, I wish I was never born. I wish God would kill me. What's the point of continuing on? And rather than the friends, you know, trying to comfort him, they try to figure out a situation. They try to tell him what God must be trying to do in his life. And they're very wrong about it. And that's what we're going to see here in, in all these conversations with Job and his friends. What we'll see tonight, we'll read Job 8, 9, and 10. And the idea here is that because God loves us unconditionally, we need to live with a grace mentality as much as we possibly can to reject that works mentality, this selfish love, this kind of love that says, I'll only serve my wife if she's nice to me, or at least that's the only way I won't get bitter about it. That kind of love that we project onto God, get rid of that and try to embrace this grace mentality that God loves us unconditionally. So start in Job chapter 8. And last week we saw the first friend, uh, Eliphaz, who, who told Job, bad things are happening because it's just kind of what he deserves. Now we're going to get his friend Bildad. I'm probably going to say Bilbo a bunch of times because the Hobbit, but Bildad is his name. So if I say Bilbo, it's, it's, I mean Bildad. It'll probably just slip out. Uh, Bildad fully embraces this works mentality. So he's someone we can look at. Again, this all creeps up in our own ways, in different ways. But here's the works mentality. So Job chapter 8. It says, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. And so here he's already coming right out with it. This works idea. He's saying God is just. That God is a God of justice. He wouldn't have hurt you or your kids if you guys weren't doing something wrong, if you were innocent. That's why he says, does the Almighty pervert justice? God would never do this. God would never hurt someone who wasn't doing something wrong. He says, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. I mean, he had seven sons and they all died. And Bildad just cast that aside and says, they must have done something wrong. They did something to deserve to die or God wouldn't have done that. And then he gives kind of the... We talked last week about religious platitudes, these little sayings we say that are meant to just kind of stop conversation and stop thought, even though we probably have good intentions, but they're, they're just little phrases we say that try to put like the stamp on it, close the book, okay, now I can move on. Things like, 
well, I'll pray for you. You know, try to figure your sin out. These things that, that end the conversation. And Bildad tries to use one of these on Job. They all do. He says, you and your sons did something wrong. Figure that out. Repent and God will bless you. I mean, we hear that kind of thing a lot. Something bad is happening in your life. Figure out your sin and then God will bless you and he'll make you way better than you were before. And it's kind of neglecting this whole fact. Well, Job had like 10 kids that he loved dearly. It says he was making sacrifices for them to make sure that God wasn't angry with them. And it's just, oh, let's throw that aside. Just figure out what's wrong with you and then God's going to bless you. It says, if you were pure and upright... Surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. And that's what he's telling Job. Figure out what's wrong with you. Tell God about it and do better. And then everything will work out for you. And it'll be even better than it was before. You know, this is the definition, though, of that works mentality. Bad things happen to you because you're bad. Good things happen to you because you're good. I mean, it's, it doesn't work like that. I mean, we're going to get into the flaws in this argument, but he's just setting that out from the start here. Remember the heart issue at the core of this. Our thinking, when we think God operates on this way, it's our selfish love that we're projecting onto God, thinking that he operates the same way that we do. And that's what Bildad is telling to Job. God is mad at you because you did something wrong. That's why he did these things. Just repent and everything will be fine. Then he goes on verse 8. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? I mean, he's just saying, this is how things have always been. This is how God always is. All people know this, that if you're bad, God's going to do bad things to you. Just figure it out, repent, and he'll bless you. Verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. He's telling Job, if you were doing the right things, God will be blessing you now. And he uses a couple pictures from nature to show this. He talks about a papyrus and a reed. And he says, these are plants, even if they're green right now and not cut down, If you get rid of the water by them, they're going to die really quickly. These plants die quickly without water. And Bildad is saying that's like the person who forgets God, that everything might look fine to them, but they've been cut off from God because they've done bad things. The water's been removed from them because they've done bad things. So he's saying if you're suffering right now, if you're withering right now, it's because you've been cut off from God. You don't have that water anymore. Even the, the reed and the papyrus will dry up without the water. And he also says then in uh, verses like 15 through 18 that he's like a plant that grew and had no root and eventually that plant died and there was no trace of it left anywhere. What he's telling to Job is look at you, Job. If all your kids have died and everything has been taken from you and your health, look at yourself. Bad things are happening to you. You have no water. You have no root. God would give them to you if you would just figure out what's wrong with you. Just figure that out and then fix it and then God will bless you. Figure out what's wrong with you and God will bless you. He'll bless you abundantly. That's, that's that works mentality message. If you had more faith, if you would deal with your sin issues, then God's going to bless you and he's going to make everything better for you, brother. I mean, that's that works mentality that he's saying. Now let's finish the chapter. Behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the earth, others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. So it's again, that religious platitude. If you figure this out, figure out where you're sinning, then he'll fill your mouth with laughing. Just trust me on this. Just figure this out and and you're going to forget all about that stuff that happened to you because God's going to bless you so abundantly. 
Now we see here what Bildad is telling Job in this chapter is completely that works mentality, selfish love that we project onto God because that's what we do. He doesn't trust that God would just love people. But remember, we have a perspective here that Job doesn't have and Bildad doesn't have going back to the beginning of the book. See, Bildad is saying, all this stuff is happening to you, Job, because there's some secret sin in your life you've got to figure out and then God's going to bless you. But we know that's not the case. If you read Job chapter 1 and 2, God wasn't like, oh, Job has some secret sin I've got to punish him for so he figures it out. God says, I am pleased with my servant Job. He is just and blameless. And God is the one who points him out to Satan. So we know none of this stuff is happening to Job because there's some secret sin God is trying to get him to find so he can bless him if he repents of it. That's not at all the case. This is actually happening to him because God pointed out to Satan how pleasing Job is to him. See, and that, that sounds harsh, but a lot of this stuff with Job, we have to keep the full picture in mind and we'll come back to that idea and hopefully make sense out of this. But we know... We got God's perspective from chapter 1 and chapter 2. He is not punishing Job. So we know then that God doesn't operate on this conditional, works-based, good deeds means blessings, bad deeds mean punishment, karma system. That has nothing to do with the biblical God who we worship. That's All the other gods, there's tons of people who worship gods like that. That is not our God. He is not about karma. You're going to get bad things if you do bad things. But that's what Bildad thinks, and that's what we kind of all think in our own way. Maybe not to this extent, but it comes up in our day-to-day lives. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's go on now to how Job responds. So Job responds to this. And the thing I like about Job, he doesn't let his friends get away with religious platitudes. They try to just get him to shut up and be like, okay, thanks for talking to me. Pray for me and you know everything will be fine. He doesn't let them get away with this. He argues with them. And that's what he does here. He, he refutes this. Now he ultimately accepts this, but he questions it. He questions what Bildad is telling him. So let's go to chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so. But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he cannot answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. He removes the mountains, and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. See, he's starting to question this thing Bildad is telling him. He says, I know it's so. Like, I know that you're right, Bildad. He kind of just accepts this works mentality. But he questions it. And he really points out a lot of the flaws in this. I know it's so. But how can a man be righteous before God? And then he says how powerful God is. Like, How could you have any think you can stand before a holy God and say, I've done good enough to get good things from you. He says you can't figure him out. Who can say to God, what are you doing? He's getting at this flaw. When we have this mentality about God that he loves selfishly, here's the big flaw. If we, will, if we believe things or say things like, if I figure out what's wrong in my life and turn around and God's going to bless me, who, how can a man be righteous before God? That's our question. Who could be so arrogant to think we deserve a blessing from God by figuring out some wrong thing in our life and making it better? Or who could be so arrogant to think that blessings are a result of the good that we do? Who can be righteous before God? Who can work so that He earns a blessing from God? All we can say is I'm more righteous than that guy. Maybe I'm more righteous than I used to be. But we can't stand before God and say, I deserve better from this God. Again, all we can say is, yeah, I'm better than that idiot who sins all the time. I'm better than that. But that gets to the core 
of our wickedness and sin. The best we can do is compare ourselves to other people and say we're more deserving of a blessing than they are. How can a man be righteous before God? And let's go on. He keeps pointing out these flaws in this this way of thinking. Verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I mean, even if God would listen to me, if I could go to God and say, here's why I deserve to be blessed from you, here's why I should get good things to you, what would I say? He said, how can I answer him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. All I can do, he says, I could beg mercy of my judge. That's really all we could say to God. If we really think this works mentality thing to its logical conclusion, we have nothing we can say to God except to beg mercy of him. See, what he's saying is if my kids have died, my home is destroyed, my servants have died, my possessions are lost, because I have a secret God, secret sin that God is punishing me for, what could I possibly say to God? He says, I could ask for mercy, but obviously God isn't listening if that's what's going on, if we have this works mentality aspect of it. See, this works righteousness makes sense from our perspective, because again, that's how we operate. It makes sense to us. We love people and favor people who are nice to us. But when we think at ground level, in real life, day-to-day situations with God, that can't make any sense. Because when we look at what's going on in the world, we know terrible, wicked, ungodly people appear to be blessed by God. So this idea of work stuff can't make any sense. We know that godly, holy, Christian people are suffering immensely. So how can we think this God shows favor on those who are good. We can't think this makes any sense when we really think it through. That's what Job is saying. I could ask for mercy, but he hasn't given it to me. He is crushing me with a tempest. He multiplies my wounds without cause. He'll not allow me to catch my breath. So what's it mean if we don't get the mercy? If we have this works mentality. Again, we're trying to erode this idea. We haven't got really to the good news yet. So he continues, verse 21. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? So he's taking this works idea to its logical conclusion that it doesn't make any sense. If we have this misconception about God, that He is, again, the selfish love, this is the logical conclusion. This is the natural response and the reaction. He's saying it's all one thing. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. God shows no favor to anyone. It's just random who gets blessed and who has an easy life versus who has a life of hardship. But then it goes to this, we get this God we might worship, but not a God that we trust. Look what he says in verse 23. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. This is how we end up viewing God. When we think he operates in this way. We might worship this God. Plenty of people worship a God like this. Every other religion out there is a God like this. Some Christians worship a God like this, who gives good things to good people, bad things to bad people. But, can you trust a God like that? Because we see that that's not how it works out. You lose all sense of trust. If that's how you see God, that you think he just laughs at innocent people, why else would he do these things? Verse 25. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. 
See, I could pretend to be happy. I could pretend like I'm just going to put on a happy face about it and God's going to bless me in the end. But what's the point? This is, again, that big flaw in that way of thinking. If I'm condemned, why do I labor in vain? If God has already killed my kids because of some sort of secret sin He wants me to figure out, what's the point of even trying? If God will do something like that, why would I try to put on the happy face and try to clean myself up? Because that's what He might do. There's a bunch of flaws in this way of thinking. Verse 32, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Job is longing for a mediator. Someone who can stand on both sides. Who's God and man. Now we know this is Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. God and man. Who can represent us to God and God to us. We'll get back. That's like the, the encouraging thought. But we're going to save that for a minute to, to wrap this all up. Because Job's not done complaining. But what he's, what he's longing for is a mediator who eventually comes and his name is Jesus. And now let's go to chapter 10. He starts complaining directly to God now. He's not just complaining about God and and asking these things. He turns to God. And this is what happens in this way of thinking, again, to its logical conclusion. Why would you trust a God who loves you based on your performance? So chapter 10, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked. Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. See, he can't trust this God now because he knows this doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing this? Does this seem like it's a good thing to you, God, that you would take away everything I've worked for because there's some secret hidden thing wrong with me? He says he knows he hasn't done anything wrong. I shouldn't say anything wrong because that comes up later, but he knows this isn't the reason why God has done this to him. He says that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I'm not wicked. This doesn't make any sense. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. Why make me, why put me on this earth just to punish me for some secret thing that I'm hiding that apparently, or that my friends are telling me. And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me, and you will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself awesome to me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes in war are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return. To the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death, without any order, where even the light is like darkness. See, this is the end of his speaking now before his next friend speaks up. And he's really getting to the core here of this problem of a performance-based, works righteousness, conditional karma view of God. He gets at that in verse 14. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. It's like if I do anything wrong, it's like you've got a target on me. But then he says, if I am wicked, woe to me. Okay, if I've done wrong, I get it. I, get, I, I mean, from a selfish point of view, we understand that. Someone does wrong to us, we want to hurt them. 
If I've done wrong to God, He wants to hurt me. He says, I get that. If I'm wicked, woe to me. But then here's the, the problem with this way of thinking. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. Because he says then in verse 16, if my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. So he says, even if I'm good, even if I try to lift up my head, you're going to cut me down again. Because who or how can a man be righteous before God? See, that's the problem. There's no winning with a works righteousness kind of God, except to say I'm better than that person or I'm better than I used to be. Maybe that there's no way that it's hopeless. So Job questions this works mentality. But again, he ultimately accepts it. He said in verse 2, I know this is true. So he's questioned it, but not quite come to the full conclusion. He, he still says, yeah, I know this is true, even though it doesn't really make sense. And what about us? And we got to look at ourselves because this is that works righteousness to its logical conclusion. We're not going to trust God. We're going to think every single thing bad in our life. There must be some secret thing we got to figure out. And then God's going to make everything smiley and better than it used to be. And if we're good, we're going to think, yeah, I'm really pleasing to God. He's really blessing me. I earned this. See, I've thought that plenty of times. I've thought, well, God must be mad at me. I did a bad sermon. God must be mad at me. He's going to punish me in some way. But more often with me, it's, I think I've done something good. So these blessings I'm getting in my life, this little raise I got, this extra money I got, that's because I did something really good. God is really pleased with me. But that's works righteousness. That's a works mentality. And I've thought, I can't do something. I'm not perfect at it. I got to be perfect or God can't use me. That's works. And I've definitely looked down on people for not being as righteous and godly as I am. It's all works mentality, and we all do these things because we all have flaws in our way of love. And even though we all fall into these traps, it can't make any sense. That's what Job is getting at. Works righteousness makes no sense. So we reject that and try to embrace a grace mentality. Reject the works mentality, embrace the grace mentality as best we can. So we have to now try to understand how God's love is unconditional. And whenever I think of that, I think, well, how can I express this? How can I get this idea across? And I I first come to this picture. Well, I'm a dad, and I, I go with that because that's the least selfish I am with love, with my own kids. And I think, okay, that could help me understand God's unconditional love. Because even when my kids are being awful, I'll still hug them. Okay, God will still hug me when I'm being awful. Even when... Uh, they're being like really terrible and, and not really terrible, but when they're being disobedient, we'll say, it's not like I'm going to stop feeding them, right? So I think, oh, God's going to keep feeding me, you know, even if I'm being like my kids. I mean, so that helps me make sense of it a little bit. And like when they're too tired to walk, we get home after church and we're here really late and they don't want to walk in. Okay, I'll carry them because I'm their dad. I love them. I'm not going to make them work. And okay, God carries us when we're tired. Yeah, that's all true. And that's the the picture I think of. But in this situation, I think that's kind of a cop-out. And I don't don't want to use it. Again, that can help us understand this unconditional love. But kind of a cop-out with Job. Because think about Job has lost everything he's worked for. His kids have died. He's lost his health. And we also have to come to, to terms with this. We're going to be about grace here. That not only could God have reversed this, God could have prevented it. And here's where it's a cop out to say, oh, you know, God is like a father. He loves unconditionally. Well, I wouldn't do this to my own kids. So how does now the question has kind of changed a little bit because we can't use that cop out here. God's not allowing that to say, well, you know, it's just some other things because We got his perspective. This is happening specifically to Job because he's been good, because he's been righteous, because he's been just. So the question is now, how can this still be a God who loves unconditionally? And this is the deeper question to get. If we're going to understand grace, we have to get this. Now, I can't answer that specifically. So how could... And that's a bit of a cop-out, but, but I'll get there generally in a minute. I mean, how can, if we're going to say God loves us unconditionally, how can we reconcile that with all this stuff happening in our lives? I and mean, that's a lot of people's hang-up with God. And that shows the works way of thinking. 
If God is real, if God is loving, this wouldn't have happened to me. But we're still operating under the assumption of works here. Now in Job chapter 38, the end of the book, God's going to show up and tell Job who he is. He's not going to tell Job why he's done these things. He just shows Job who he is. And we'll get there in a while. But he says, you know, where were you when I created the earth? He points out to Job, I am God. And he doesn't explain any of this. He just points him to who he is. And see, this is a very important point about understanding this grace mentality. When we think that God can't be loving because bad things happen to people. We're still operating under works with that. Now there's two things here we need to remember or grace doesn't make any sense. One is Jesus, crucifixion, and resurrection. See, that obliterates this idea of works. See, that Jesus is God in the flesh. That, yeah, we do need a mediator. So God comes in the flesh to live in this world. And he ends up being crucified. He is nailed to a cross. And why is that? I mean, he is paying for our sin. He took all of our sin. He took that upon himself and then he died for it. See, that's why we confess our sin. That is why repentance is important. It doesn't mean you repent and God's going to bless you so abundantly. But repentance is important because under the old covenant, they confessed their sin onto an animal. And the animal was killed to show that their sin was removed from them. When we confess our sin, it's like we're transferring our sin onto Jesus and he paid for it on the cross. He is God and he died and he is a perfect sacrifice to pay for all of your sin. And then God made him who knew no sin to be your sin so you could be his righteousness. You want Jesus had to die so that we could live. But in order for us to live, we need to die. Not physically, but to our old self. To this works way of thinking. And submit our lives to his control and that he is God and he is Lord and Savior and that we have no merit we can come to God and even think we can negotiate with him blessings and curses we have no way to negotiate with god and that's so get surrendering your life to jesus not about making a contract or a negotiation it's dying to yourself that's what the bible says but what that means that's half of the exchange he took all your sin paid for it he died so that you would live and that means he gives you his perfect righteousness that the way god sees you is the way that he sees jesus and that's not because of you, it's because of Jesus. But what this means, this is so important. I'm going to have you repeat this in a minute, but let me just introduce it so that we can all you know, sound nice together. You, if you're in Christ, you are righteous. You are perfectly righteous. So now we've got to rephrase the question. And it's not about how could God let bad things happen to good people. That's, if you're righteous... How could there be any performance for God to base his approval of you on? See, you're already perfectly righteous. There is no like good, bad thing. God is going to judge you from one day to the next because you've done good this day, bad this day. You're already righteous. There's no performance. The performance was Jesus. He did the performance and that's how God looks at you. So there's nothing for God to base that on about you. Now in Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees who trusted in their own righteousness. See, it was the Pharisees who said, I know God's law better than anyone else. I'm less sinful than anyone else. I tithe everything I have, even my spices. See, these were the ones who were trusting in their own works. They thought they were good enough to earn God's favor. And we still have that in churches today. I mean, that if you've been in church for any amount of time, you, you know that. There's still the modern Pharisees that kind of look down at people and say, well, you don't follow God's rules like I do. And I can say that because, you know, I do that. Uh, and we all do that. But I do that. I'm that modern day Pharisee from time to time looking down on people. And that's all looking at works. Hey, I've earned God's approval. But here's, here's the trickiness. And this works mentality is so tricky because this is how Satan gets us to distrust God. And it's just as works righteousness to say this. Look at how unrighteous I am. I'm so bad. I need to try better next time. Whether you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm so good, or looking at yourself and saying, I'm so bad, you're still looking at yourself. And that's just as much works as the other one. And that's that trickiness. See, that's still a performance-based thing. It's just now you're basing it on your, your badness. Oh, I'm so wicked. 
You know, I need to do better. That's a, the heart of that is good, but thinking that God punishes you based off of that. There's the discipline part. That's different, different topic. God doesn't see us like that. If you're a Christian, you are righteous. That's it. There's no performance for God to base his love on for you because you're righteous. Now, the other thing we need to keep in mind about grace is our eternal destiny, where we're headed. Because, you know, Jesus died for our sin and he died not for his own sin, but for ours. He had no sin to die for. And then he rose from death. He resurrected because sin cannot keep him in the grave. Death cannot keep him in the grave. He was victorious over that. And then after he resurrects, 40 days later, Jesus ascends back to heaven, fully God and fully man, where he still is now, fully God and fully man, still being our mediator today, praying for us, serving us, being our great high priest in heaven. And he's going to come back, fully God and fully man. The same way he left, he's going to return. And when he returns, he's going to recreate this earth the same way he recreates us after we give our lives to him. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth where there is no corruption and influence of sin where nothing bad will happen anymore. And he's not preparing us for a life on this planet. This is not our home. Yeah, the new earth is going to be this planet, but reformed. He's not preparing us for this life. He's preparing us for our eternal destiny. Now, some of you got glasses on. I got glasses. We're going to do, do a little uh, trial. This only works if you have the vision where you can't see far away. But let's all take off our glasses or do this. I can't see anything now, so it, it weirds me out because I can't see any faces. You're just blurs. And, well, that's my point. I'm going to put them back on. Hey, you can keep yours off for a while if you want, if you don't want to look at me. <laughs> but hey, could I live like this without any glasses? I mean, you don't know how bad my eyes are. They're really bad. Like, now I can read Adrian's shirt. Um, I could live like that, but you know, I'd bump into a lot of stuff. I wouldn't see things, you know, and I tested it out just to make sure I could teach on this. I took my glasses off when I was walking outside, and it was really scary because I didn't know when I was going to trip. I didn't know when I was going to run into something. The lights looked all kind of weird. I could survive. Yeah, I'm not going to die, but I'm going to miss so much of what's going on around me. I'm going to bump into a lot of stuff that I don't need to if I just have my glasses on. Now, what the Bible says about where we're headed, our eternal destiny, is in Second Peter chapter 1. It says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's that short-sightedness for not being profitable in our, or unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we've got to know where we're headed, where he's preparing us for. We're not at home on this world. That's why bad things happen. It's not because God is punishing us. I mean, there is the discipline part of it, and God is in control, but... Okay, he's not basing it on our performance. We are righteous. And he's preparing us for this next home to make sure that we get to that home. And if we forget that, we're so short-sighted that we're blind. And we can stumble through this world and bumping into a bunch of stuff we don't need to, but it's because we're being short-sighted. We don't have our eternal goggles on to be cheesy about it. Now we're going to end here. And this is the part. You've you got to repeat this. I want you to say, if you're a Christian... I am righteous. Say it. I am righteous. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. I'm not going to make you say that, even though it, it would encourage me to hear you say that again. I'm not going to because it's kind of embarrassing. I just want you to hear it from your own mouth. There's no performance that God is basing his approval or disapproval about you on because he loves unconditionally. He is not selfish about it like we are. He is selfless. He died to see you as perfectly innocent and forgiven and free from all blame. And if he's going to give us his son, what is he going to withhold from us? That's what it says in Romans. So remember that that is how God sees us. It's not a works mentality. It's a grace one. Jesus died for you. God's not going to say, oh, they got a secret sin. I'm going to kill their kids. That's not how he works. 
that Jesus died for you. He's going to get you home to where you truly belong. And let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask for your help by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would reject this works mentality, this selfish love that we project onto you, God. It's not who you are. We need to worship you for who you are, and you're not karma. You're not give people bad things because they've been bad. You are holy and perfect and long-suffering and forgiving, and you don't pardon iniquity, but you forgive it through your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to remember that we are righteous, not because of what we've done, but because what your son has done for us and because of your great love that you have for us, that you give us that grace. Lord, I pray if there's anyone out there who's listening, who's living under that works mentality, whether they think they're a Christian or not, to show them that that way doesn't make any sense. And help us all to realize that. Works mentality doesn't make sense. And neither does grace, but that is so much better, God, that you're a gracious God who forgives us and loves us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship. Or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.